We all have a tendency to cast the sidelong glance, comparing ourselves to others and noticing what they have that we don't or vice versa. This can lead to feelings of envy or pride as we create little hierarchies based on status or accomplishment or wealth or appearance and much more. However, perhaps the most destructive hierarchies we create are those based on righteousness and sin. When surrounded by immoral people, it can be easy for us to feel superior in our own righteousness. We may compare ourselves to a habitual liar or a serial adulterer and feel good about being honest or faithful even when we fall far short of God's righteous standards. And this tendency to contend, condemn others for their sins while excusing our own is, of course, absurd. It can be difficult for us to recognize the absurdity of it, of comparing ourselves to others until we gain a, an outsider's perspective. When we see it in someone else, when we see their example, when they are comparing themselves to someone else and we know both parties, then we get a glimpse of the absurdity of it. And this is precisely what Jesus offers us in today's text. Through the powerful story of the woman caught in adultery, we are invited to empathize with the characters and experience the temptation to judge others for their perceived sins. However, we are also confronted with the reality that we ourselves are guilty and deserving of judgment. God gave us this story so that we would see that only Jesus is qualified to act as judge. And therefore, only Jesus is able to offer the forgiveness that all undeserving sinners need. So, if you are able, please stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word, and especially for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be reading from John chapter 7, beginning at verse 53. Most of your Bibles, it might look like it's chapter 8, and it's also printed for you in your bulletin. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, 
Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. These are the words of God. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of the gospel. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May our hearts sing with joy as we hear you speak those words to us. And for those of us who are hardened in sin, those who are prone to judge others, may our hearts be softened to receive this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. You may be seated. This text from these 12 verses in John are probably the most contested 12 verses in the entirety of the Bible. You'll notice if you have an ESV or it's printed in the bulletin that above the text it says the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7 verse 53 to chapter 8 verse 11. And then there will be a footnote that says some manuscripts do not include chapter 7 to 8.11. Others add the passage here. Others after 7.36 or after 21.25 or after Luke 21.38 with variations in the text. The study and comparison of manuscripts is called text criticism. And I don't want to bore you with all the details, but I want to give you some confidence that what you're reading is the Word of God. And I believe that I'm on safe ground affirming that and preaching it as such. Some pastors do not feel comfortable doing that. For instance, John Piper did not preach on this sermon. He preached this sermon as an illustration of the things that it teaches in it. The the fact that there is... No condemnation in Christ is well confirmed throughout the rest of Scripture. And that we are prone to judging others is taught by Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels. And the narrative is uh, absent from the oldest Greek manuscripts of John prior to the 5th century. Questions about where this text comes from, but that need not cause us doubt. The best scholars believe that it is authentic. Um, And so I think that it is wise for us to not skip over this, but to dwell with it, to see how it manifold, how it teaches so clearly through an illustration the beauty of uh, God's forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, I think that it's we we will we will address it as the very words of God. Um, and I believe I'm on safe ground to do that. Also, Calvin and Sprawl did it too, so just so you know. <laughs> there are other authorities who felt the same way. So let me set the scene before you. I know that was kind of like, wow, we did not care about text criticism, and we didn't even know what that was. And, uh, but I hope it was helpful, and if you have more questions about that, or if that causes you any doubt, please come and talk to me. 
I would love to encourage you that the Word of God that you have printed for you in your Bibles is the Word of God, right? And it is inspired and inerrant, and we can trust it. It is a trustworthy Word. So let me set the scene for you before we dive into what God wants you to know, that only Jesus can judge and forgive sin. You see, the Pharisees come to Jesus with a test designed to get him in trouble any way that he answers. Right? You remember this test that he brought to them in Matthew about, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? On the face of it, it seemed like there's no way Jesus can answer this without getting in trouble. Right? It's a conundrum. It's, it's placing Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. And here they, they come under the pretense of, uh, of having caught this woman in adultery. And it looks like it's a trial about a woman caught in adultery. But it's not. It's a trial of Jesus. His teaching, His authority to declare, Thus saith the Word of God. His ability to speak authoritatively on issues concerning the law. The law of Moses in particular. Because that's the standard by which they are judging. And as the story unfolds, it's clear um, that it's not about the woman, it's about Jesus. And then in a customary fashion, he begins to flip everything on its head. So in reality, it is the religious leaders who leave on trial as well as you and I. Somehow, these religious leaders have caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Now, with Jerusalem crowded from the feast and people sleeping in tents in every free space, it, it makes for a perfect recipe for this kind of thing. You think you might be anonymous. You're not from Jerusalem, and you've met this handsome young man, and he's beguiled you and led and seduced you, and, and you're out in the open square, and who's going to find out? So along with the opportunity for easy discovery, it's also easy motives for um, a woman to be caught in this kind of sin. But what's very interesting is the conspicuous absence of the other party. Where's the man? In the law of Moses, both are to be judged for their sin, not just the woman. Now, in the first century culture, was clearly before Me Too. And it was the women who were always more culpable than the men. Because boys will be boys. What can you do? Men are going to behave like this. So, it's understandable. But women should not. That was the uh, sentiment that was in the air at that time. And that is why only the woman is caught in the adultery and not the man. So they come to Jesus with a loaded question. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And this is partly true. God does require capital punishment for adultery, but the stoning was only specified for adultery with a betrothed woman, and the punishment was also for the man. A betrothed woman was usually a young girl who's betrothed to be married, and it was seen in uh, Judaism that stoning was a, um, a harsher penalty than um, for other uh, married women. They would be the Mishnah, which is their uh, 
debating what the law means in their own interpretation, says that a, a married woman should be strangled. Now, I don't know which one's better than a strangling or a stoning. They both sound pretty terrible to me. Uh, but the horns of this dilemma for Jesus are, are, on the one hand, would he uphold the law of Moses by encouraging them to stone her? Now, the law requires that the person who is the first witnesses, the ones who discover this sin, they're to be the ones who put their hands out first against the offender. They're the ones who are to cast the first stone. So they come. They have their stones. They're ready. They have caught the woman in sin. It's their responsibility to judge her. What do you think, Jesus? Will he uphold the law? Now, remember, Jesus is the one who eats with sinners and tax collectors. He has prostitutes that follow him around that they know used to be possessed by demons. We know this guy is licentious. He's not going to uphold the law of Moses. He's going to be forgiving. So they think they have him. But if he says, yes, go ahead and stone her, he would undermine the uh, Roman, he would uh, run the risk of uh, uh, running afoul of the Roman authority who said, nobody may execute anyone except for us. They had the, the, uh, the right and authority to uh, uh, capital punishment. And that's why uh, when they accuse Jesus, they bring in Pilate. He's the only one that can kill. He's the only one that can crucify Jesus. So they think if, he, if Jesus says that it's okay to stone this woman, he will be taking what is, belongs only to the Romans, and then they'll arrest him and execute him. So either he's going to be too loose, he's not going to uphold the law of Moses, or he's going, to be, he's going to uphold the law of Moses, but he's going to run afoul of the Romans and he'll be executed. Either way, they win. But this is not really a new dilemma. How can God be just and the justifier? How can a holy God forgive sin? Jesus shows us the way. Instead of taking the bait, he puts his own spin on their question. As if to say, I'll see your king and I raise you an ace. But he takes his time doing it. He gets down on the ground and he writes in the dirt. He writes with his finger in the dirt. And as we hear that, we're reminded of when God wrote with his finger on the tablets of stone. What he writes is not important. There are many people who have speculated many different things. He wrote their names. He wrote out the law. The accuser of, these, of this woman actually get that. That's startling. That should be startling to you. Because these people haven't got it at all. This whole time. And instead of... Instead of picking up the stones and starting to stone her, they leave. They understand what Jesus is teaching. They get it. Some say Jesus meant only those without the guilt of adultery or lust, but that, that's not enough. The takeaway is clear. Only the sinless can judge justly. 
In truth, religious leaders find themselves in the same spot as the adulterous woman. A hot seat of judgment. But it's only when they arrive at this point. It's only when God brings them there. They brought the woman there. Now Jesus has to get them there. To sit with all the condemnation of guilt and shame. Just like she did. It's only when they arrive at this point, recognizing that they're on death row in the eyes of Jesus, that they can truly comprehend the profound grace offered through His forgiveness. It's like this. When you're parched, you'll savor every drop of a glass of cold water. But if you're unaware of your thirst, you might just have a soda. Most of the conflict, read judgment, that transpires between brothers and sisters in Christ becomes so heated because we do not keep this in mind. As Paul mourns in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Only when you begin to look at others as fellow deserving of death sinners who justly deserve condemnation but have received grace instead will you be able to deal with conflict constructively. But it's not only the hard-hearted religious types that need to be confronted with the reality of their sin. The woman caught in adultery gains our sympathy not because her sin is excusable, but because she pictures beautifully the gospel. Jesus doesn't let her off the hook for her sin, as we'll see in a moment. As bad as it is to be caught in sin, it's an actual God's grace. For all those called to salvation are drawn irresistibly by His grace out of the darkness into the light. Had she not been called out, she might have remained comfortably numb in her sin. But confronted with the consequences of her sin, the sentence of death, she must come to terms with the state of her life. You could easily imagine a scenario where she somehow evades this mob. Perhaps she makes a compelling argument that they mistook her for someone else. In that case, it would be that much easier for her to return yet again to the sin that threatened her existence. But when she stands before Jesus with all of her shame and all of her guilt on full display, with nowhere to run, no room to evade, and then she hears his verdict not guilty. That changes a person forever. You no longer look at sin the same way. Perhaps that's you this morning. You feel like you're facing down your accusers. And it's clear they have you dead to rights. You can sense the weight of their accusations hanging heavy in the air, suffocating any hope of defense. You need to hear Jesus silence your accusers. You need to experience His forgiveness. The only way to be free from the weight of sin's guilt and shame is to bring it into the light. 
The crux of this story isn't merely to highlight our guilt and our deserved judgment, rather to dramatically unveil this profound truth. The sole individual truly equipped to pass judgment on you is also the one whose deepest longing is to forgive you your sins. Notice that when all leave, when no accusations remain, the Word made flesh is the only one left in this trial. Fittingly so, for He is the only one who's qualified to condemn her to death. When He was last in Jerusalem preaching, Jesus said this, John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And again in verse 30 of chapter 5, I can do nothing on My own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. The Father has given all authority to His Son to judge. He is qualified both because of His righteous life, but also because of His just judgments. And if that is the case, then aren't the scribes and Pharisees correct that Jesus overthrows the law of of Moses by His leniency? How can Jesus let this woman go if she has been really caught in adultery? How can He forgive her sin? To put the matter in theological language, how can God be both just and the justifier? How can He vindicate His holiness and yet extend mercy to undeserving sinners? See, the Father has entrusted His Son with the power to judge. He is qualified But if this is true, doesn't it affirm the claims of the scribes and Pharisees? That Jesus has challenged the law of Moses. That He's being more lenient than even Moses. How can Jesus dismiss this woman caught in the act of adultery without punishing her? How can He absolve her sin? The beauty of this story is that it is a microcosm of the gospel. To consider this, we need to think in terms of the marriage motif. In Isaiah 54, 5, the prophet says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. And again in Jeremiah 3, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And then the prophet proclaims this to Israel. The adulterous, unfaithful bride of Yahweh. The prophet said, return faithless Israel declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. 
Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. When Jesus arrives on the scene in the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist hails him as the bridegroom. He has come to Israel, his bride, to call her back to covenant faithfulness. He preaches, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But as Israel has done over and over and over again, she preferred her other lovers to her husband. So they rejected him as husband. And here we get a little picture of the love that Jesus has for his bride. Despite her unfaithfulness and her rejection of him, he went to the cross to buy her back from her whoring. He loved her so much that he endured the humiliation and shame that her sins brought upon her. He took the shame and guilt of her adultery and he bore it on the cross. Paul tells us, he gives us a picture of the depth of Jesus as husband's love for his bride. In Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. And cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Jesus, the righteous judge, died for his bride so that he could wash her clean of her sins. So that he could speak over her the thrilling verdict, not guilty. So that she who was covered in the shame of her adultery could now be clothed in the perfect righteousness of her faithful husband. So that instead of divorce or worse stoning, this adulterous woman, the church, gets a restored marriage covenant. She's returned to her rightful husband as if she had never left him or sullied herself in sin. The reason Jesus is left alone with this woman is that Jesus is the only one qualified to judge her. But instead of condemnation, she finds him to be full of grace and mercy. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. We don't want to sit in the place of judgment. We don't want to feel the weight of shame and guilt for our sins. We don't want to endure condemnation. We've found creative ways to hide, to conceal our sin, even from ourselves, but especially from others. And we've looked down on others. We've judged them. We've condemned them without recognizing that we're in the same place as them, justly deserving your wrath and your displeasure. Father, there are many here this morning who need to hear Jesus speak to them. They need to hear Jesus say to them, neither do
do I condemn you? Go and from now on sin no more. Father, our hearts are thrilled at the depths of your mercy and grace that you would overlook our adultery, our having sold ourselves in sin to worship other gods, that we have been unfaithful to you time and time again, and yet you remain faithful. Thank you for the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ alone. May our hearts rejoice as we leave from here with that verdict over us. No condemnation. We pray this in Jesus' name.